Why are Paris and New York City suing Total Energies? And how did Lithuania become the continent's leader in energy efficiency retrofits? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a climate communicator. Today is Friday, September 23rd. Let's jump right into today's news. Let's start with some extreme weather events. Hurricane Fiona will travel near Bermuda today, causing bad storm conditions in the area. Then this weekend, it will smack Atlantic Canada in the face. Weather modeling predicts that Fiona will make landfall in Nova Scotia as a post-tropical storm to also hit Prince Edward Island and parts of Newfoundland, Labrador, and Quebec. To be clear, a post-tropical storm can still be nasty. It just means that it doesn't have the formal hurricane structure anymore. The insurance company Swiss Re says Fiona could be the worst Canada has experienced since Hurricane Iger in 2010. Flooding and infrastructure damage is expected. Meanwhile, the death toll in Puerto Rico has risen to eight. Over in the U.S., the Midwest suffered in silence earlier this week. I totally missed that they were stuck under a heat dome. Dozens of heat records were broken Monday and Tuesday from Arkansas to Nebraska to Colorado. This was the first time Wichita, Kansas hit 100 degrees Fahrenheit this late in September in 25 years, and Nashville, Tennessee broke its previous heat record made in 1925 for this time of year by 2 degrees. Time for a climate study. A new study published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology determined that wildfire smoke has reversed air quality progress in the contiguous U.S. by about 15 years. Wildfires release particulate matter, called PM2.5, into the atmosphere that can enter the bloodstream and wreck lungs and the heart. In fact, the number of people exposed to unhealthy levels of PM2.5 has increased by 27-fold over the last decade, and the number of people exposed to very unhealthy levels has increased by 1,000-fold during that same time frame. We need to increase controlled burns when safe, conduct other wildfire reduction methods, keep people from buying homes in at-risk areas, and reduce the impacts of climate change. Now let's look at some climate victories. During the UN General Assembly in New York this week, world leaders agreed to up their financial support and conservation commitments to combat the biodiversity crisis ahead of the official UN Biodiversity Conference, COP15, in Montreal, Canada. This crisis threatens more than 1 million plant and animal species and over half of the world's GDP. Economists say global leaders need to spend as much as $967 billion or £860 billion a year to reverse course by 2030, which is about $800 billion more than they currently pledge. During the recent meeting, Germany pledged over double its current commitment to now $1.5 billion or £1.3 billion a year to international biodiversity funding. This was the best financial contribution increase. Other countries announced new strategies, including a plan to protect biodiversity that was backed by Ecuador, Gabon, and the UK, among others. According to the Ecuadorian president, quote, The plan defines what we expect from governments, financial institutions, the private sector, philanthropists, and civil society to face the challenge of increasing and mobilizing resources for biodiversity. That would be awesome, but we'll have to wait until COP15 to see more formal commitments. Meanwhile, both Paris and New York City have joined a climate lawsuit by six NGOs and 16 local authorities against Total Energy for failing to line up action with the Paris Climate Accord emissions requirements. This legal action started in 2020 and uses a 2017 French law requiring French companies to draft vigilance plans to prevent environmental damage. The ruling is not expected to come until at least March, so I'll keep you posted when I learn more. 
In other news, the C4 City Climate Leadership Group, a network of about 100 global mayors focused on sustainable and climate resilient cities, announced a partnership with the alternative asset manager Nordic Real Estate Partners to bring the 15-minute city to life in five pilot cities. The 15-minute city is an urban planning idea that decentralizes the role of cars in cities and designs the cities around providing everything someone needs, work, entertainment, education, and green spaces within a 15-minute walking distance of where they live. This would decrease cities' carbon emissions by around a quarter, as well as drop air pollution and increase residents' quality of life. The group announced this during the Earthshot Summit in New York City this week. The initiative will focus on two types of neighborhoods, emerging ones and aging ones, and has dedicated $500,000 or £444,000 over the next two years towards this effort. Over to Australia now, Tiwi Islanders has successfully won their court battle with the gas company Santos, meaning it cannot drill in the sea north of Melville Island for its $4.7 billion or £4.2 billion Barossa project because it's traditional water. Santos has two weeks to shut down and move its rig from the area. Santos says it will appeal the decision in federal court. In Europe, where most countries have largely ignored calls to increase building energy efficiency standards, Lithuania now leads the continent in these retrofits. It directed $1 million of public grants and private funds towards this effort brought on by a European investment bank model product that couples grants with loans. These retrofits include new windows and installation, solar and geothermal heating systems, and all-weather glazed balconies. Together, these things drop the cost of heating by 80%. The building sector in Europe accounts for about a third of the continent's emissions, so increasing efficiencies is an important focus, especially as the region heads into a costly winter. Seeing how well it worked in one of Europe's smallest countries, the European Investment Bank plans to expand its product and include a blueprint of how each of the 27 EU member states can leverage limited grants to incentivize people and businesses to invest in their own retrofits too. The U.S. finally ratified the Kigali Amendment, which adds hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, to the list of ozone-depleting chemicals in the 1987 Global Treaty, the Montreal Protocol. Originally, HFCs were used to replace ozone depleters like chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, but it was determined that HFCs are potent greenhouse gases. We're talking hundreds of thousands of times more powerful than carbon dioxide. By ratifying this amendment, it forces the national market to swiftly phase out the use of HFCs, which is mainly found in refrigerants and air conditioning. This move had large bipartisan support because there are already many chemicals on the market that can easily replace the greenhouse gas, and the switch will help drive American exports. The U.S. is the 137th country to ratify the treaty, and the U.S. government says its ratification could reduce emissions by a half of a degree Celsius, or one degree Fahrenheit, by the end of this century. Now for a developing story. The World Bank president, Mal Pras, is facing calls to resign after refusing to definitively say there is scientific consensus that the globe is warming and that humans are causing it. When asked if he agrees with that statement on Wednesday, he just said, quote, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Wow. Just wow. Malpass was picked by Trump for his five-year position in 2019. The U.S. is the largest shareholder, so it gets to choose the president. Former U.S. Vice President Al Gore was one of the first to call out Malpass for his climate views. Now a coalition of civil society groups are calling on the World Bank to fire Malpass. The bank and the White House have yet to respond to this matter. And that leads us into the climate fails. 
Brazil's President Bolsonaro is looking sketchy ahead of the country's president election in October. Brazil and the U.S. are mirrors of each other. They are neck and neck in leading a lot of valuable global exports such as corn, beef, turkey, chicken, and soy. They trade a lot with each other. And Brazil's fascist President Bolsonaro has been watching what Trump did during the 2020 election. There is growing evidence that he might try to pull the same trick of claiming voter fraud in the next election next month. Recently, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has been pushing for his peers to sign a referendum agreeing not to consider any Brazilian president legitimate if they win the election unfairly, looking at Bolsonaro. He was clear to say the U.S. shouldn't intervene, just state a stance. Senator says he could not get a single Republican senator to sign, which could have something to do with Trump endorsing Bolsonaro's re-election. Now, let me be clear. We are not going to tackle climate change in a swift enough timeline to avoid the tipping points I talked about on Monday if Brazil or the U.S.'s democratic system falls into fascism. You might say, hey, there's eco-fascism, but neither Brazil nor the U.S.'s alt-right seems interested in even taking climate change seriously enough to end up in eco-fascism. Also, ecofascism is a hate-filled environmental position, in my opinion, so I'm not sure it matters one way or another once you enter fascism. I'll leave some reading down below for ecofascism. The U.S. is the historical largest greenhouse gas emitter and currently in second spot. We're basically responsible for a fifth of global warming. And Brazil is the fourth largest historical greenhouse gas emitter and currently is in seventh. But it is capable of tipping one of the tipping points by itself, which is the state of the Amazon rainforest. So we need people in charge who care about climate change over this transformational decade. We need to pay very close attention to what happens in both countries during these next few elections for the sake of the climate crisis. As a reminder, Bolsonaro has significantly increased Amazon deforestation rates by making it easy for agriculture and mining industries to burn and cut down the forest. His opponent, Leftist da Silva, wants to form a coalition with other countries to preserve their forests. And speaking of the U.S., major U.S. banks like Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Bank of America are threatening to leave the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, set up by the Bank of England's CEO, Mark Carney. These are among the wealthiest and dirtiest banks in the world. According to a Financial Times report, they are considering backing out for fear that they will be sued for not following the stringent decarbonization commitments. They point to how China and Russia don't have many banks in the group, and they say they can't meet those efforts due to a lack of government action. Well, as the report notes, the banks are closely watching the Securities and Exchange Commission as it works to come up with some climate disclosure rules. So hopefully they won't be able to say the government isn't doing anything soon. Let's end today's episode with an interesting move by the coal baron, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. He tried to pull a twofer by presenting a bill to Congress meant to speed up energy project permitting. This bill is meant to be attached to a measure to temporarily fund the government that Congress must pass before October 1st. Now, speeding up the process is desperately needed for the clean energy transition, as there are many projects ready to go online that can't because the grid isn't ready or able to take them up yet. Projects have been stalled for months, even years, and both parties agree something should be done about it. But Republicans and Manchin want to prioritize fossil fuel permitting still. The legislation would require the federal government to issue lease permits for the long-delayed $6.6 billion Mountain Valley Pipeline project in the senator's state, a project even West Virginians are conflicted about. An even bigger problem is that Democrats fear that it would violate the National Environmental Policy Act by weakening environmental protections without the proper environmental assessments on its impact. 
It's not clear if Manchin would get enough Republican support for this bill, though, either, because the Republicans seem to be supporting a bill proposed by the other West Virginia senator, which is more aggressively pro-fossil fuels. Because neither progressives nor conservatives want to support him, Manchin has called it revenge politics. Poor Manchin. And that was your climate recap for Friday, September 23rd. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becksphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.